Welcome to Rector's Cupboard, a podcast for people who are interested in questions of culture and faith. We ask these questions from outside the institutional structures of religion. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you enjoy and benefit from the conversation. There's an interesting documentary on Netflix. Well, there's a number, but the one I'm thinking about, I think it's called The Last Blockbuster. And it talks about blockbuster video and the very last one, which is in a small town in Oregon. It plays, it's interesting that it's on Netflix because Netflix maybe was part of killing blockbuster. When I was a kid, you spent your Friday night or your Saturday night when I was a young adult going to the video store and standing in front of a wall and selecting a video and you hope they had it in and all that kind of stuff and you had late fees and everything else. And now there are no more blockbusters. Uh, The Bible never said that the gates of hell would not prevail against blockbuster, but apparently the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But at times it can seem like we're waiting for the last uh, blockbuster to close. The church in many people's minds is in decline. You may have participated in church Um, quite exhaustively in your past, and now maybe don't go to church at all. What is the church? Who is the church? Does the church have any role in society right now? Uh, What do pastors think about that? What do others think about that? Here at Rector's Cupboard, we were really pleased to be invited to enter into conversation with a friend of ours, David Goa, who is an author and museum curator, um, writer on all kinds of different topics of faith and culture, uh, he's the founder of the Ronning Center for Religion and Public Life, and uh, he's a bit of an Orthodox theologian as well. And so he said, why don't we talk about the church, who the church is, what the church is, and what people have to say. So this series is what has so far come out as a result of that uh, invitation. We speak with a number of people who care about the church and are willing to ask some of those honest questions about where the church is at and what the future looks like for the church in the days ahead. We've got uh, six episodes, I think, seven episodes, and, uh, and we'll be releasing those uh, every couple of days. And so if this is the first time you're listening, if you're listening as they're released, that will be the cadence. We hope you enjoy the conversation. The Church in Between Times, Episode 5. We speak with Martin Baxter, Senior Pastor at St. Andrews and St. Stephen's Presbyterian Church in North Vancouver. Should we expect the community of the church to actually make a difference in people's lives? What does it mean to be part of a local church? I grew up in the church. In fact, I think that in my personal experience, my father, of blessed memory, had two idolatries. One was the scripture and there was an event which broke him of that idolatry. Another was the church, and there was an event that broke him of that idolatry. But as a result, the church has always been something that I've treasured, but also treasured in a mildly uneasy kind of way. So in the last uh, several years, It has been my sense from conversations with a variety of clergy and other people, it's been my sense, rightly or wrongly, that we've come to a kind of watershed 
in the life of the church within, uh, within our country and probably far beyond that. And I'm interested in that. I'm interested in thinking about that. And that requires one also to think a little bit about what one thinks the church is. So many of the clergy that I've talked with, it seems to me there is a, well, at the very least, a kind of ambiguity around the meaning of the church. My own sense is that this also is, walks kind of hand in hand with a, an ambiguity about the vocation of the official ministries of the church and perhaps beyond that. Now, I don't know that my sense is anything but, you know, my little sense of things. So I've wanted to have conversations with a variety of people and explore with them both um, their sense of the church, what they were taught about who the church is, who is she, about what many have articulated as a current kind of crisis around how the church will be shaped going forward. The pandemic has highlighted some of that. So I'm very grateful to, uh, to you, Todd and Allison, for arranging for us to have a series of conversations here in Vancouver. Uh, and thank you for that, yeah. and I look forward to our talk, uh, we're, talk we're really together. We're really grateful to be speaking with you um, on the mic here when we record, and then in the times in between having conversation also. Uh, we're pleased to welcome, so we, we're having conversations with clergy, which, you know, the world is longing for, I suppose. <laughs> oh, it is. Yeah, I hear often from just friends, like, what does a pastor have to say about that? <laughs> and, uh, but that's what we're doing over the next couple of days. And, and our first uh, conversation is with a, a good friend of mine, someone I'm really grateful for. Martin Baxter is pastor of Minister of Word and Sacrament at St. Andrew's and St. Stephen's Presbyterian Church. So he has to say that. Do you still say that when you answer the phone? Good morning, yeah, St. Andrew's and St. Stephen's Presbyterian. Yeah, I know. It takes a long time. Because you can't say good morning, Sass. Because that just, no. yeah, people are like, <laughs> did I call a church? Yeah. Um, so we're pleased to have Martin Baxter here. Um, and uh, I'm going to pick up some of the conversation and some of the questions around the church. Uh, and Allison Williams is on the mic as well. David, start us off with asking Martin or whoever. So you have a lovely Irish accent. <laughs> and when I think of Ireland around this question of the Ecclesia, I mean, we have the troubles. Huh? We have the troubles. We don't have to talk about the troubles. But I am curious to know, um, in your both your early experiences of the church as a child and then in your intellectual formation around the church can you can you give me a little glimpse of how the church came to be for you mm. and then also maybe what you were taught that she was Okay, great question. Thanks for um, the introduction, Todd, um, and for keeping it um, above board. Yeah. Um, and David, good to meet you again. Um, uh, so I was born in Northern Ireland. I will try and uh, speak in a way that people will actually understand my 
lovely accent. Um, And for the first 10 years of my life, I didn't go to church, Um, sort of. I went to Sunday school on uh, Sunday afternoons because a lady in the local Presbyterian church came and picked me up and took me to Sunday school. But I certainly didn't go to church in terms of Sunday morning. Uh, My grandmother died when I was between the ages of 10 and 11. And the family contacted the minister of that church to do the funeral. And he Mm. refused Mm. because the family had not, the larger family had not attended church regularly. Mm. So the family contacted another church, another Presbyterian church just outside the town. And the minister there agreed to do the funeral. So the entire family, um, probably about three or four family units together, all moved their membership from one Presbyterian church to the other. What did that mean for me as a 10 or 11-year-old? No clue. Um, But the youth pastor um, came to our house one day and invited Uh, myself. Youth pastor of the old church or the new one? The new one. A lady came to our church, uh, came to our house to uh, invite my sister and I to come to youth group. And there began a journey. Hmm. Um, for me, four years later, I became a Christian. Four years later, I'm leading the youth group. Few you years, few years later, As I'm, it goes. <laughs> I'm leading a praise team, worship team of about 50 or 60 people on a Sunday morning um, contemporary music. Um, what did the church teach me that the church was? Mm-hmm. And David, the short answer is nothing. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was ever taught what the church was. I grew up and my understanding of what the church was, was it was a group of people that believed um, in one key verse, the kind of John 3.16. I think I identified the church as a John 3.16 group of people that we had to come to an an acceptance that if we believed and put our faith in this person called Jesus, then the church was a waiting room to that glorious day when you would die and you would ultimately go to eternal life. And that was it. Our job was to convert people to that um, and then somehow teach them how to be good little Christians for the rest of their lives, whatever that meant. So Bible study, worship, praying. So that was my understanding as a teenager going and in right into my early 20s. That was what the church was. That's the only thing I could see that it was. So it's essentially that, uh, that task is the task of conversion. Absolutely. Of calling people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. John 3.16 is God is love. What's the relationship between that text and calling people into that relationship? I'm going to go back to because what you said was calling us into a relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I, we both agree, probably, that that's what we are called to be in right now. I don't think I was agreeing to have a relationship with Jesus when uh-huh. I was in my mid-teens. I think I was agreeing to have a belief in a person called right. Jesus. Right. And so the, the language may well have been, I invite him into my heart because clearly he was not there in the first place. 
But I'm not too sure as a 15, 16-year-old teenage boy that I wanted to have a relationship with a guy mm. that I never could see. I wanted to have relationships with girls. Right. Right? In your heart. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, I think that we'll ask, I think we, we sometimes kind of use language like relationship, but that's not what we were teaching people. Mm-hmm. Were you? Was it just that you were on the other side of the line now? You were unsaved then saved or was that language not so much there either no i i agree with you I, exactly that was there that okay. was that language of so salvation in the presbyterian church in that part of the world at that time that language yeah was it's there. a it's a belief because what was the church for me again that question what was it taught it wasn't really taught what's my understanding of it looking back on what i ended up doing in my mid-teens um i i, I think that i basically now saw the church in Northern Ireland as a kind of club mm. where um, you needed to become a member of that club in order to have the benefits of that club. And the benefits of that club were obviously eternal life beyond death. Hmm. So, so becoming a Christian was actually the, you know... Um, Born in the Presbyterian Church, we get baptized as an as an infant, and I have a lot of sympathy for the Baptists who now actually do it as adults. But the same thing, I look at it, and what I see is baptism, which is a sacrament, is actually the way that you become the member of a group of people, and your identity is now in that group of people, whatever that group right. is. Right. And that for me was it, that the church was just a membership club of people that believed in Jesus and were waiting then hmm. to die and go to a much better place. So two things. It's a fraternity of belief. Yes. You know, Martin Marty, the great historian, church historian in the United States, talks about America as a nation of either believers or behaviors that those are the two ways in which the church, and he's, think, he's thinking, of course, largely about various Protestant churches in the United States are configured. The other thing that's striking to me about what you've uh, articulated is this notion of eternal life. You become part of the fraternity. So here we have ecclesia as fraternity which is kind of different than than community, of course. Community always has difference in it. Hmm. A a group of people that are fraternally linked to each other. And that opens up uh, a set of things. I assume those things have to do with with, uh, the way you reshape your social life, uh, aspects of your culture, Uh, And, of course, there's the issue of worship and what have you there as well. But also the notion of the eternal, you cast that from this teenage period when you were, when, when this occurred, as joining a club for the sake of the eternal after death. And it's so your initial account of the death of your relative, the rejection of even burying her and moving to the other 
church where they said yes. So that puts the existential matter of death and the eternal right in front of you. Was there any sense that the eternal has invaded life? That the eternal is present? No, I don't think so. Uh-huh. I don't think the church demanded any potential changes. Mm-hmm. We kind of taught it, sort of, that your Christian faith should change you. But the way it changed you was basically that you would now commit to going to church on a Sunday morning you would commit to pray every day and do a quiet time every day when mm-hmm. that was never really explained why, what are you trying to get out of that? Um, and if you can possibly talk to others about your faith, the goal of that was to get another bum on another seat because ultimately that person, the goal of that was to get another person through the doors. Mm-hmm. But there was no real sense. Obviously, Things have shifted a lot for me now, yeah. right? Yes. But in terms of discipleship, to use that word, or sanctification or transformation, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, that was mm-hmm. never really in vision at all. It was really just a group of people that were going through the motions, coming in Sunday after Sunday, worshiping, singing their praises, listening to a message. But very rarely were they going out And you could see massive differences in people's lives. Now, it took me a while to actually reflect on what's going on. Why why would this be the case? Is this all there is, being a Christian? So how did that unfold for you? I mean, you talked about this way of seeing things when you were quite young. I mean, teenager and what have you. Um... Was that, in fact, a correct perception of what was really going on? Or was it simply your teenage way of, see, of, of assuming what was going on? No, I think conversations I was having with anybody uh, in church, that's what church was. That's interesting. It, there wasn't yeah. really any, there, there, was, there were no ministries that were clearly set up in the mm-hmm. church to disciple or whatever. Um, think back to, and again, I'm not here to knock any of these, um, the likes of Alpha and Christianity Explored, tremendous programs worldwide. They've had a huge impact. Isn't it interesting that both of them uh, had to do a part two, which is very rarely talked about. Well, and, because no, and you know, super small compared to part one. Uh, yeah, Super small. Yeah, like virtually nobody. I what's what's no. part two? Which is probably kind of the discipleship part. I so see. part one of both of those mm-hmm. courses, ultimately the it's goal conversion. of them is to, is to try and get person to, to come to a faith in Jesus Christ. Or a belief. Right, yes. A belief, a and belief the, that and they the need baptism him. in the Spirit in that Exactly. Yeah. So, so in, that, in that sense, Martin, is the church in this framework then um, just a mechanism for salvation? Yes. That there's no other function really outside of that. Yes. And salvation is a mechanism as opposed to a path. Yes. Or an encounter. 
It's a destination. Huh. I see. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think to Something use that like kind that. of yeah, a, yeah, yeah. idea that you're, you originally asked about mm-hmm. bringing the eternal mm-hmm. into life. Mm-hmm. So it's not a journey. It wasn't mm-hmm. for me considered as a, no, it's a journey it's where you were being one side of the line, e- the other side. Exactly. Of the line. Yeah. Exactly. You, yet, then within, so th- then you follow this career path. Yeah. Though you had you had you had a career in between. You didn't go from your teen years into like full time ministry no. studying and stuff. You had something else in between there, but something even even in, when you count this now, something kept you involved. You you liked living your life in that group of people, that culture, that. And I don't. I mean, as a fifteen, sixteen year old boy, you weren't thinking about eternal life. Like you weren't thinking of no. Yeah. So something else was holding you there. Exactly. What was that? As a 15, 16 year old boy, you're thinking, can I date a girl okay. by the end of the week? <laughs> you're not thinking, when am I going to die yeah, and I, go to this place? I'm, I'm so glad I get to, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I just, I had a lo- I had a love for the church. Okay. Um, and so was obviously got involved. We had a great group of friends. So all of us were really involved and I stayed involved. And then you identified involved. as leader and yeah. off you go. Absolutely. And so you go through those late teenage, early twenties, um, heavily involved in it. I started to be responsible now for a lot of young people and was questioning myself, like, what am I trying to teach them? So books like, you know, Rick Warren stuff, you and I have talked about this a little bit in the past, kind of purpose-driven life and stuff like that. There was something about that book that really challenged me. Um, Tony Campolo's writing. um, You Can Make a Difference. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. There was something about those books. The kind of so what stuff of the early faith when you're starting to read and starting. Exactly, because they were challenging you into this world of what does it mean to be a disciple and not just a Christian? Are the two things just a different terminology for the same thing? Or is there something fundamentally different about them? Hmm. And... um, I was just, I guess I was just so involved in church. My minister and associate minister at that time really encouraged me to consider going to Bible college for a year. And it was a good opportunity. I'd I'd done 10 years as a telecommunications engineer. Seemed to be the right time. And so my wife and I decided, okay, let's go to Bible college. And through connections, that's a long story. I won't bore you with it. (laughs) We ended up coming to Vancouver to go to Regent College. And so that's what, 2002, I'm now 31, is that right, 31 years of age, oh my world, a long time ago, um, and it, it, and things completely transformed for me um, at the college. Um, I remember thinking going to a Bible college, the goal was to actually go and be taught things like systematic theology, which at that time, as a 31-year-old, I'll be honest, I had no clue what that was, but people talked about it. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, systematic like, A. It's like, wow. Yeah. You know, I'd heard the names like J.I. Packer. Yeah. I was going to become, you know, kind of student of J.I. Packer. You know, yeah. some, I needed Holy Spirit to come and help me there. <laughs> Stay awake. <laughs> right. And, and yet, I actually came, and the course that completely transformed my life and my understanding was a course with a profound name, was Old Testament Foundations. Who taught it? Ian Proven. Yeah, because he he taught that the Bible was a story and there was more to it. And so your eyes started to get completely opened up and I started to do a lot of my my own reading and 
those three, four years at Regent completely transformed me and my understanding of what the church is supposed to be. What did it paint that picture? What did it help you understand what the church is supposed to be? I, I think the church is supposed to be um, a group of people that are actively trying to become like Christ on a daily basis. And we do that collectively together. And uh, somehow, now we can unpack that, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, to, but to me, it's, it's about discipleship. And I've come to always be teaching now that I don't want people to identify themselves as Christians. And that may sound off. But I think the word means that they have got a belief in Jesus. I do want people to have a belief in Jesus, obviously, but not mean, not just barely that. I want them to become disciples of Jesus. And actually, David, the story that actually really got me to think about this was when I reflected back on, as a young teenage boy, with um, watching my dad, who was a great golfer. Um, he died a number of years ago, but I just wanted to play golf like my dad. He also was superb at doing interior decorating. Uh, way back in the old days, we used to put wallpaper on the walls and mm. on the ceilings. Mm-hmm. So I watched him to see how he did this and how he played golf. And I think as a young teenage boy, I realized when I was older, all I wanted to do as a young teenage boy was to become like my dad. That's discipleship. Of course. Right, and that's and, that's what we're called to be now. When and we golf pass. is a discipline, or, and so is paper hanging. You have to do it over and over and yep. over and over again. Exactly. Yeah, and you become. You know what's so wonderful about sport and art, is that one becomes its servant, and it then transforms you, and that's the discipline. Yes. Discipline makes that difference. And we should be looking for that transformation. Yeah. That should yeah. be something that we are yearning for mm-hmm. on a daily, weekly basis. We mm-hmm. should be coming to church in order to to seek, you know, yes, forgiveness and all that, but to become to, new. To become renewed every week mm-hmm. for the Holy Spirit to be changing us mm-hmm. so that we can become more like Jesus every single day. That's what the the church should B. To become more like Jesus Christ. What was he like? What is it? What is that becoming more? What does that look like to you? What do you see in him? That's a great question. Um, I think that the first thing we have to, I think, well, it can't come as kind of you do this and then you obviously get to that. I think they all, all these things have to come together. But we have to learn to actually stop living for ourselves. I, I think we are selfish by nature. I think the story of the Bible begins, the, in quotes, the original sin is an act of selfishness. Mm-hmm. And I think it teaches us that that's who we are. Fallen natures are selfish. Mm-hmm. 
And so to see Jesus, we have to see a person who was absolutely selfless. That wonderful Christological hymn in Philippians 2. and mm. the, the gospel, the four gospels are teaching us about a person who lived his life utterly selfless, pouring out on everybody. And so Jesus to me is a person that is giving life um, by pouring himself out and telling us if we want abundant life, that's who we are to be as well, to follow him, to pour ourselves out. And if we do that, we actually become more full of life. So who who is Jesus? He is life as it was created to be, which we will not experience if we keep living for ourselves. Hmm. I think since I was very young and I grew up, of course, with the Gospels, I was so struck by how Jesus Christ, in all of his encounters, seemed simply present to what was in front of him, present to the other. He did not presume that what they said was who they were. He did not presume that how they behaved was how they are. So that presence to the other. So then the big question is, how is he capable of that? (laughs) How is he capable of that? And uh, my sense is that that's where the question of spiritual discipline comes in within the whole history of the church. Uh, Both the diagnosis... Well, Yaroslav Pelikan, the great historian of Christian ideas, makes the comment someplace that that the early Christian church, before it could diagnose sin, that is missing the mark, Mm -hmm. being turned inwards on yourself, assuming that your projections onto the world is what the world is, before before the church could diagnose sin in that sense, it had to see uh, the remedy or it had to see the fullness of the human person. That is, it had to see the incarnation. And once it saw the fullness of the human person, which is also the fullness of God, then it could diagnose the sin. And then it could proceed to provide this kind of discipleship, this kind of discipline, which is, which is meant to lead one to holiness, lead one to the wholeness of life. So that was yeah, lovely to hear what you said about him. If, as you say that, Martin, I, I think one of the questions we, we want to ask is kind of your sense of the, the current place and state of the church um people speak about you know crisis in the church and align that to uh to the pandemic that we've been through and seem to be emerging from that the church may be at a point of crisis if you were going to define what a crisis might be in the church right now i would imagine some of it would reflect back to some of the answer you've just given that if there's a crisis in the church right now in general what is the crisis what well, <laughs> that that's a huge topic. Um, is there a crisis in the church right now? Yeah, I think there is. Yeah. Um, that's I, I can't say the church, obviously worldwide or whatever, um, 
within some of these mainline denominations that I probably are more aware of, yeah. I think there is a crisis. And I think it's because we are still um, stuck in a way of seeing ourselves as just a group of people um, who believe in Jesus and are waiting mm. to die. Um, but we're not seeking holiness, mm. sanctification. Um, we're, we're not actively trying to disciple. We're worried about paying bills. And so we've, we've become this group of people that are, have actually become very inward-looking, mm. um, just trying to survive things, um, which is obviously the complete opposite of what we really need to be. So the crisis isn't isn't COVID and what COVID has done has done. It, it, what, and what you're saying it's that that has exposed some things that have just were already there and have yeah. come to the surface. Yeah, now. and you and you know a colleague of ours who plays um, has played a couple of rounds of golf with us. Um, he got interviewed at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, and he phrased it and said that COVID has exposed the weaknesses yeah. in the church that were already there. Yeah. And I think that's an incredible insight, um, you know, which which group of leaders sit down and actually, in normal times, say our job here is to diagnose our weaknesses. So what what were those weaknesses? I I, I don't know if he, if he would have expressed them. Right, he it, might have a different list than you. But yes, yeah. mm-hmm. I, I I think um, th- this sense of. You know, we, we have, if you think about what's currently happening here, people are incredibly anxious about coming back into the building known as the church. Um, despite the fact that in North Vancouver, we've been able to do that for three and four, almost four months now. I think it was the beginning of July. Four That's months. That's right. Yeah. We Mo- could, a lot of churches did September, but right. but you could do July. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah, people have... It's not that they're wrong because we've went through a year and a half of a pandemic where we all are all worried about um, our lives and everything. But that actually exposes the fact that we are selfish people who are wanting ourselves to be you know, full of our own lives. And we don't want to have risks by sitting beside somebody that might expose us to something and take that life from us. So we, we've become, you know, become like lepers to each other mm-hmm. where you just don't want to interact. Well, and, and now every church has to give an option to have, you can watch it online or you can whatever, or you can whatever. And so which, just, which I've struggled with. Yeah, you you, you to, know that. Yeah, you know, exactly. From a year and a half ago when we were forced to go online, mm-hmm. we went online, our church went online live because we weren't looking for anything that was perfect in terms of quality. Yeah, we were looking for something that was as close re- to gathering real, as you could be, right? Yeah. So, um, and yet I had a number of colleagues, and again, I have no disrespect right. to them, that were recording services, producing, producing, produ- producing, videos, and actually, I'm saying, well, what what is that? I I don't actually understand what that is because if we're not gathering as best we can, how can we possibly be doing real? Worship. Well, what does it mean to be the church if you're not you know, gathered? If I can sit on my own on a Wednesday night in my PJs with a cup of coffee and a ginger nut or something, 
and you know watch a YouTube and worship flip, service and flip and through the songs you don't want to hear. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the forty-minute sermon, exactly. Is Twelve like, minutes, I, if I can. <laughs> I just think that's that's crazy. Somehow we've reduced um, the church and worship and everything to this audience. Particip- you know, not even participation, just passively soaking it up if they want. Well, I, I have a, I want to push w- against this a little bit. I wonder about this, and because I don't, I have not spent a lot of time in a number of the Protestant churches, either mainline or evangelical, in recent years. I mean, I've been there on occasion, but here's what I wonder. A number of these churches have gone, or seem to me, over the last maybe it's 50 years or maybe it's 20, to uh, what strikes me as somebody from the outside as being concerned with performance values. So uh, that is, it seems to me, from the outside, and that they have become preoccupied with spectacle. And um, so I, first of all, I wonder uh, if you can give me a larger sense of that, but also if that doesn't uh, prepare the way mm-hmm. for, because mm-hmm. if it is spectacle. Because it's just sales then. Yeah. If it's spectacle, it's sales. Marketing. If it's spectacle, it's passivity. If it's spectacle, it isn't gathering and so with the pandemic and it's just going on course, maybe what, what's your thoughts? Hmm. Well, can you say a little bit more about what you mean by prepare the way? Because I think I think the four people around this table would completely agree with you. that I think the church has become a bit of a spectacle mm-hmm. and we could critique worship styles and everything. But if we are just doing it so people think we're good at it. And it's all everybody setting, looking at what's happening up front, and you know, um, my my sense, David, is when you were younger, probably in my denomination, people actually used to go to hear. Where would you go to hear a really good preacher? Mm-hmm. I actually think now that's the last thing that people think of when it goes to church is actually where's the best worship band, mm-hmm. right? Is right. the shift that has happened in our generation. Because um, we're not word focused anymore, we're actually kind of music focused. But that is because well, it's and, the spectacle and experience to make me yeah. feel something, right? So, but you said prepare, prepare the way. What, what do you mean by that? Like, it's prepare that we're going to do something different, radically different. Or did you just mean prepare the way for um, what happened in COVID? That now you're just producing services, and right. You can watch it. That's what okay. I mean. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it really got us again. It showed the weaknesses. Showed the weakness. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And the weakness was we ended up. It's like if we can produce something, we don't actually need the bodies there. So it's extraordinary to me when I think back on the, to the ancient church, which is, uh, as you know, ecclesia, the gathering, the coming together. Ecclesia. I mean, that's not a peculiar word in the ancient world. It, it was what the citizens of Athens did when they came together in order to make decisions about the aqueducts or garbage, as a matter of fact, 
to say nothing about what to do with Socrates. So that's an ecclesia, that's a gathering. It's a gathering of citizens. What the gathering in the ancient church was around a common task, a common doing together, which was called by that other lovely Greek word, liturgia, you know, a common work. And that common work was understood to be a work for the life of the world. It was not understood to be a work for your fraternity. It wasn't a work for your soul. It wasn't a work for your personal salvation. That concept didn't even exist. It was a work for the life of the world. It was to lift up the life of the world and seek to have one's eyes refreshed so you see the life of the world in some sense through the eyes of the lover of the world. The, a number of years ago, they had the anniversary of the Lutheran church that, that I was baptized in, in the little town of Camrose, Alberta, Norwegian Lutheran. And the Norwegian Lutherans were deeply influenced by pietism, and then when they came to North America, they realized they didn't have to be a state church, so they became pretty influenced by North American Great Plains evangelicalism. That's a huge shift in how that world mm. works. What was really interesting in this folk church <coughs> uh, for the celebrations of the 100th anniversary is that they used each of the hymnals, the ones mm. that they brought from Norway, the first one hatched in North America. So there was about six or seven of them and service books that developed, increasingly becoming a, a bit more liturgical as the Lutheran church entered into the ecumenical movement and started to have conversations even with Catholicism. So actually, the Norwegian Lutherans, unlike the Swedes, who were always liturgical, the Norwegian church became a little more liturgical uh, here 40, 50 years ago. However, they had this particular church had marvelous choirs. So they, <clears throat> they used the service book journey as a way of celebrating the history of the church, and it was fascinating. Uh, it's a big church, lots of people. The Norwegian heritage is there, at least as an echo. Mm -hmm. So as they sang uh, hymns and songs from these various, these various books, they raised the roof of that church mm -hmm. until the last one. And the last one was the worship band. And it was fantastic. I, I never knew that existed in the in the Lutheran Church. But here was this band of young people. Did, the, did this, they turn the lights down at this young guy? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And smoke they, even, yeah, yeah. they even gave you smoke. Yeah. And and in my view, it was not holy smoke. But you know, who am I to judge? Uh, I know my father would have turned over in his grave. But what was fantastic is that everybody stood up. And there was an elderly man standing not far from me with obviously a young grandson. And he really wanted to get into it. And, you know, Norwegians don't know how to do this. <laughs> they really don't. And, in fact, to move, period. Right. Yeah. You know, so he was pretending. It all seemed pretend. But nobody could join in. Like, there was no way of joining in. 
Now, I have been to yeah. an evangelical church where yeah. they'd use this music stuff, and it was clearly mantra. I've written a book about mantra in India, in the Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim traditions of India. I know a bit about mantra. So there is this mantric element, and that's interesting to think about in and of itself. But this particular evening was so extraordinary because you had a sense that there was some common language in the church mm-hmm. until we got to this last stage. And then it seemed to me it was, this was a different kind of performance. This was something else. This was a different liturgia. What was it? What was it holding up? What was it pulling forward? So I wonder if part of what has happened with the worship, in fact, we should reflect on that, because has that not made made spectacle, made your... Uh, has it really focused... I, I don't mean to suggest that what I'm pointing to here is correct, because I don't, I don't right. know, but has it really become much, much more hyper-individualistic, much more anchored in feeling, hmm. very peculiar kind of feeling, the kind of feeling that rock bands give you and advertisements give you, which is the feelings associated with our passions, our sufferings. Hmm. What yeah. do you think? <laughs> You're what, gonna, what an interesting... Um, yeah, you have a couple of words that you used there was this kind of idea of feelings and we we can jump so quickly to kind of say that modern worship is gets so kind of touchy-feely that it there's something wrong with it i i completely respect the fact that over generations that have always worshiped the same way that when they actually sing the liturgy of using songs and hymns that they've all known for years they have an experience and they actually feel something when they heard something that they weren't used to it was different and they became passive now shift the focus to a group of young people over the past 10 15 20 years that have grown up with nothing but what we call modern worship Mm -hmm. awful terms but we know what we're talking about they are having the same experience that the Norwegians would be having because what they do and what they've got become used to is allowing them to enter into worship. Put them in a setting where they now have in their service one, forgive the term, traditional mm-hmm. thing played mm-hmm. by an organ mm-hmm. is completely foreign to them mm-hmm. and they can't get involved because mm-hmm. they don't know. It. So it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's the flip side. So what we've had now is just really is kind of the the movement, the generation movement over the past 30, 40 years, I think. So I, I and I think the mainline denominations we're we're struggling because we're trying to do this mix of yeah, both. You're trying to blend it. And, and yeah. we're yeah. feeling so miserable. You're equally upsetting everybody. Kind of. uh, nobody's yeah. happy. We're we're trying to do something. It's the, the classic kind of Robert was it Robert Weber that came out with the term blended worship. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's the way which is really kind of a grand way of saying and then the just young people a little bit of everything. There. Yeah. Put a little bit of everything in there and you'll be and everybody will be happy. Which but then is there's the no complete opposite. There's no there's no integrity. There, well, because no, worship is meant is also a kind of art, isn't it? Yeah. There's no real I've been in many churches where it's it's mostly older people. 
and they're doing more contemporary worship, they don't seem to be connecting with themselves. There are not young people present, but they seem to be agreeing that, well, I guess we better do this kind of music because this is what the young people who aren't there yeah. like. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think the main focus is not actually what style. It, I, I think the question, to go back to your mm-hmm. use mm-hmm. of liturgy, is who's the focus of what we're actually mm-hmm. doing? Yeah. If we're coming right. into anything that we call worship mm-hmm. and we spend the majority of the hour about on who we are yeah. rather on whose we are, Mm-hmm. that's where we have fallen way short because it's become more about us. So is the worship music liturgy? Is it oriented towards the divine, towards the transcendent? Hmm. It, it, it can be, is what you'd say. Yeah, if it's yeah. led, I think. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, th- I think one of the, one of the shortcomings of, of much, to use your term, modern worship... Um, is there, there has been a shift from the communal to the individual. Um, when I, when I was, um, a music director, it's difficult to find contemporary songs that speak in the corporate, which from, from my philosophy of purpose of worship is to, to join and to worship as a corporate thing, at least in particular parts of services, that that it being a corporate action is important to know that my worship is not just between me and God, but is between us and God. Um, and I, it was a struggle to find songs. So you're saying most of the songs are about me. S- uh, are the the content is about my experience of God, my personal experience. Yes, or how I was helped how i was my saved longing, my yeah and so i think it it does and it influences how people i think understand their own faith and their own purpose of what that service is for and and i do think that it's it's hard to from 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 my experience in evangelical settings um the communal was was significantly less important than my personal interaction, my personal engagement, my personal experience with a song, or and, and I think that the the theology that's presented in in many modern songs is much more individualistic, and I think that that can be detrimental to how people understand how they can participate in a church and what the point of a church and a church service is, um, hmm. because it. It doesn't call you to look at the people around you. Hmm. Well, and eventually, the, the, the structure itself is made to yes. When right, the lights go down, the lights turn off. Which the only lit up thing is the stage. You're which I think, yeah, it is like a call where you're not supposed to look at the at the people around yeah. you, and it's not. It's the focus of. And so I think some of these weaknesses that that you talk about being exposed uh, in this particular time that we that we sit in, um, how people can go, well, it's a worship service if I sit down and watch it by myself on Wednesday night with yeah. my cup of coffee. Um, I think we've gotten there because we've taught that, at least in most traditions that I've been a part of, I, I hope that not all traditions are like this, um, that that is an acceptable form of church, which, and I mean, I, I think that that I can feel the tension between the, the hesitancy to gather um for for health and for 
you know, caring for those around you and not spreading contagious viruses. Yeah. Um, but that being really difficult if you're not doing something gathered. Yeah, I, I, I think we've basically, um, again, going right, right the very way back to the beginning, how this conversation started. And David, you asked, what did we teach church was? I don't think, Alison, we've actually taught that the church is supposed to be a gathering of people. I know mm-hmm. that might seem like a really strange thing to say. I think we've assumed that, that people think everybody that. thinks that. Mm-hmm. But I don't actually think we've taught it. We haven't taught it in a way to actually understand why do people come on a Sunday morning? We, you know, because as a church leader, I might say, well, I'm assuming that everybody will come and that would, they would be passionate to become. But just to share a, a very quick story, we had really good friends around with us on a Saturday night. So I'm the pastor. I'm their pastor. <laughs> and we've had a wonderful night. And as I take them to the door to say goodnight to them, one of them turns to me and says, we won't be in church tomorrow. That's a, that's a past. I <laughs> we, we, just, you, you and I probably oh, shared these stories. Of times. So many. This is why my golf game was so bad because we shared far too many of these stories <laughs> is the fact that they said they won't be in church on Sunday. And, you know, they came up with what their from their perspective was a reason mm-hmm. that they weren't there. Now, whether I agreed with the reason or not was not what I felt. Because when I closed the door, what I felt was, should I have said something to them as their pastor hmm. to say, do you understand what church is? Like why you should be, it's not me that's calling you to church. It's the living God who's calling you to yeah. himself on a Sunday morning. You've just said to him that what, you know, my hike in the mountains or whatever it might be <laughs> is actually more important than going to the throne room of grace. You know what I mean? That, that sense of um, we, we start these things on a Sunday morning as if we're doing this call to worship, as if we are calling people in, rather than actually saying to people, I'm not calling anybody, I'm called as well, because it's Jesus that has called all of us to himself. And it's like, you know, take your shoes off, kind of thing, to realize the privilege and the responsibility we have on a Sunday morning. I don't think that's the part that's... Hmm because that's not being taught then all the focus becomes on the worship that it's somehow the music's wrong the songs are wrong you know and and for you trying to lead contemporary music there's a huge onus on you to actually lead because there's not really a liturgy yeah to actually lead the congregation through so the onus is on you to actually do the leading constantly teaching them through the music why we're singing these songs and stuff but bottom line is if we're not actually teaching people why there is a need to be the ecclesia. Um, and it, I, I think that's why we're, I think that's a weakness that yeah, has been so, exposed yeah, in yeah. COVID, David, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I have another naughty area that I would like to. Um, I can see why you're friends with Todd. I was going <laughs> to. I was going to move to like you know the, the church's gift question, but we'll do that after. I this. have this naughty question. I know your friend uh, David Jennings, and uh, we've chatted quite a bit. So because of him, uh, I'm aware of the struggle that has unfolded within the Presbyterian Church in the last couple years, and this extraordinary demanding matter of uh, how the church deals with 
this issue that has been so prominent within our society about the recognition and uh, I suppose many would say the kind of opening up to um, issues of sexual preference and gender and all of that. The United Church, of course, took steps in this direction many, many years ago. Uh, We can see in the United Church much more of how this plays itself out, Mm -hmm. I think, over time. The Lutheran Church, the Anglican Church, over the last, uh, you know, here a few years ago, after 15, 20 years of struggle, they finally put it to a, a vote and made the decision that each congregation can make its own decisions. That led to schism. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Alberta, in the Lutheran Church, the schism was about 30% mm-hmm. of them uh, left the old synod and tried to figure out how to find their way. So this matter... It, it seems to me that this is a matter that has to do with how the church understands itself within the society. Uh, whether is the church uh, to react, to respond? Is the church to follow suit with what the state does? Is it to listen to a somewhat different drummer? How is it to navigate this? And because Canada, we're such a polite people, uh, at least we think we are, and we always say, you know, after you, or excuse me. Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) These are the major Canadian expressions. Um, The... The need, the deemed need to respond to this and the political discourse around it has been really quite enormous. And in Canada, in the political culture of Canada, it seems to me that social justice rhetoric has really seized the center. Mm-hmm. And that this, uh, the United Church of Canada, of course, ran with that uh, dramatically for a long time. My own view, my own personal view, is that the United Church of Canada has carried too much of the water for social justice issues, and that other churches should have carried a bit more of it earlier on. And if that had happened, maybe we wouldn't be quite where we are now. But I also... I also have my own uh, concerns about what happens when a church begins to see itself as a social justice fraternity. Obviously, social justice issues are important. Mm -hmm. But for 40 years, I have been making an argument that we should really be thinking about social mercy, not social justice. And uh, it would change how we see things. You know, the Latin West, 
places justice at the center and mercy may flow from justice. But the Christian East has always played mercy at the center and justice may flow. Because mercy, you know, in the, in the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, we say the word mercy 142 times in every liturgy. And the word mercy is a beautiful word. The, the root of that word is also linked to the olive tree. It's all about anointing. It's all about oil. So when we say, Lord, have mercy, we're not pleading before a judge. We're petitioning a physician. We're asking that our wounds be cleansed and that they be healed, not that they disappear, but that some flexibility return to us around these matters. So these are very different ways of going about things. So I was wondering, I know this is not easy, but this struggle that you have just been in the midst of, what are your sort of larger reflections on that to the degree that you might want to say something about it? I'd be interested in hearing how that also affects these questions about who do we think we are? What is the ecclesia? And who can gather? And around what do they gather? Well, it really is a naughty question. <laughs> yeah, I know it is. Uh, because it wasn't on your list of questions <laughs> that you sent out. Um, I sent out. Yeah. So that, it, was, that he, it wasn't, I didn't. I didn't it's Todd's fault. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dave, I absolutely, just to kind of begin, I love your um, reflection there on the difference between mercy and justice. Um, that anointing that we're looking for um, a physician because we're all needing healing, mm-hmm. right? We're all coming in through the doors knowing that we don't deserve to be there, but there's a God who welcomes us in and his deepest desire is to transform us to become more like his son, which is because that's that, that's that love that he wants because he wants us to be full of the life that his son has and offers and everything so i love that whereas the justice to me my sense of it is that for justice it means somebody standing somewhere um with no sense that they need to change at all they're actually saying what is right and what is wrong right so yes or denomination um we don't want to use labels, but we have people that are, are, a lot of these mainline denominations have grown up and they have strong beliefs, doctrines, whatever. And so they come from a position of justice because they're saying their job is to actually protect those doctrines and belief systems. Yeah. Rather than actually the church is supposed to be about people practicing their faith right that lovely parable that jesus teaches at the end of the sermon on the mount which is just one of my favorite of all because after the sermon on the mount you need you know you're just exhausted and then jesus just says no just put it into practice mm-hmm. he didn't say perfect it he mm-hmm. said just practice it in life mm-hmm. just start doing this See what happens. You're gonna, you're because if you do this, you're going to be transformed. You're going to develop. Yeah, be so, the love that God made you. Yeah. 
so I obviously have my own personal opinion on mm-hmm. this incredible sensitive area. And when we've had conversations, mm-hmm. Todd's actually been part of them before um, in the church, my heart breaks mm-hmm. over it because we have become somehow forced that we have to have a stance on it, which means we have to have a belief, we have to have a doctrine, we have to say, mm-hmm. I'm right, you're wrong, mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. rather than a practice of actually how do we be the church and unite together, be unified together and understand we all have difference of, of, of opinions. Mm-hmm. So what has happened for me and my church over the past few months, I've lost leaders. Um, who resigned. One leader resigned 20 minutes after the decision mm. was made by the General Assembly with, with no real chance to kind of talk about that. Now, the, the irony is his view on all of this is probably totally in line with mine. But mm-hmm. him and a number of others have left because so their view of the church is, is that we, is we should stand yeah. on these doctrines. Yeah. And if we don't, we are kind of letting go of something because we're coming from that kind of justice mm-hmm. side mm-hmm. rather than your wonderful mm-hmm. term mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. mercy. Mm-hmm. Like if, if we cannot be the church and saying every single person that comes in here is a sinner. I don't even know if we get away with using language like that, but it's in need of healing. Yeah. All of us, and we don't know what all the ailments are, but we're all in need of healing. But and there's only one healer, yeah. and my job is to try and direct people to that healer, including myself. I need to go to that healer. If we can't get back to that, um, the church is going to crumble. One of my favorite texts of the sayings of Jesus Christ is, "You know, for all have sinned." and come short of the glory of God. I view it as the great Magna Carta of the Christian tradition. It says to us, yes, everybody misses the mark. That's not the problem. The problem isn't missing the mark. The problem is, what is your stance? So even somebody like Aquinas, you know, when he talked about faith, talks about it as a stance. It's not beliefs, it's a stamp, it's a disposition. So it's a disposition of the mind to be attentive to what the murmur of the Holy Spirit may be in what is unfolding. And I use the word murmur deliberately here because we, the best we have is to maybe, maybe hear the murmur. So that kind of disposition is one and must always be one anchored in humility hmm. because we don't know the fullness of the human heart and the human mind of others. We don't know it of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so how would we know it of others? Yeah. So, well, I appreciate you saying a bit about that because it's such a profound matter and I'm, I'm so struck by so much of the discourse around both our politics today mm. as well as within churches across the spectrum, how whether people see themselves as conservatives or progressives, mm. however they see themselves as fundamentalists or, or uh, 
far-flying liberals, they all have the same justice discourse. It, and to it me, is this interesting. is a, this it, is a very Martin, really as you relate your problem. experience, and for someone who is you know pastoring a church and you're trying to navigate congregation through this, I see that in this the uh, outline you give of mercy and justice that it used to be that the justice side in the more evangelical mm-hmm. experiences what what you're talking about the justice side was claimed by those on the you know maintaining maintaining a moral position or maintaining some kind of but now you have where equally on the other side within the church people are saying no no justice is this now mm-hmm. and so you have these two groups of people both mm-hmm. both claiming you know, we need to stand for what's just, what's right. And we see where that leads. And then to hear your word disposition, David, to hear the 20-minute thing um, is just heartbreaking. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Yeah, and, you know, I think when David was introducing this naughty question, he said about the church um, within society. And if our identity is um, focused on ourselves which is wrong or even how did the society perceive us that's wrong as well yeah like the church is not supposed to be yeah inward looking yeah. or looking out you know what we should do we have to make a decision or, or, so yeah. the rest of the society goes oh aren't they yeah. wonderful the, the, people the relevant question or the yeah you know how we the, look the, the decision world. is always you know in reform tradition is reform your doctrines because you realize it actually will help us become more like jesus you know, to me, it, it just keeps going back to that simple thing. If we're just making decisions because we want to, it's more about us again, right? It's the back to the discussion on worship earlier. Like, it doesn't matter what the decision is, what the issue is. We fundamentally flawed because we've done something when we're looking in the mirror and we're sitting around having a discussion amongst ourselves as leaders but Jesus is sitting in the corner and nobody's actually looking to him mm. to become more like him. So that's, that's why I love that idea of mercy, that anointing aspect of us constantly. The church should be patience going into a doctor's office mm-hmm. on a weekly mm-hmm. basis because the doctor has called us. The church is, is a spiritual hospital. Right, and we should be yeah. soaking up yeah. the healer's good news mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because we're we're thinking that's going to give me more life mm-hmm, you know which mm-hmm. is actually the irony of that is actually a selfish mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know so, but we should be we should be soaking this up mm-hmm. rather than what the church becomes so again back to that earlier comment from a colleague this issue the pandemic and this really difficult issue on human sexuality has showed up the weaknesses which are which have been right in been church for years Right, that so much of it has been Which about ourselves. There's obviously then, not to make it too, there's obviously opportunity in that then, because those would have had to have been faced. And now they're, it's kind of forced to, to face this. The, I want to, you know, before we move to close the conversation, we had another couple of other questions on the list, it, and, and one of them, we'll combine them then. Um, in what ways have you experienced the church as gift? Or how has the church cultivated an awareness of the transcendent? Because you're st- you're still a pastor. <laughs> you're, this is this is your call and career. And so, how has the church been gift to you? And how has the church cultivated awareness of the transcendent for you? Um, 
or one of those. Yeah. If the church is not a gift, I then you know I, I would yes yeah. I would be rightly um, challenged by all three of you sitting around yeah, this saying, table. What, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> so um, the the church is is gift because of the privilege that I get of opening up God's word on a weekly basis. I've got a group of people who are willing to donate money. To a church body to pay me to teach them the word of God, yeah. like you know, yeah. like I I really am profoundly blessed that that is what I get to do in life, um, and I think that's where we see God as transcendent is in His word constantly coming back to it that He's not judging in the sense of, you know, um, go off and sort yourselves. Um, but that constant message that we get the whole way through the scripture, that we are blessed because of whose we are, not because of who we are. And God wants to bless us even more. And part of that is that um, he, you know, he, he wants us to experience that life. I've I've once used the um, analogy, I hope I get it right, of um, like the Israelites in the Old Testament um, when they're brought out of Egypt, it's like um, this idea of a bird in a cage that they've been caged up for years. And when they're brought across the Red Sea, it's like the door of the cage is opened up. So they're now free. But unless the bird comes out of the cage, it's not mm-hmm. truly free. And they, they don't know how to get out of the cage takes 40 they, years. They don't know what to do when they get out well, of the cage. It's ca- different birds. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and so it's, it's that, it's that yeah. sense of, the, you know, Jesus, that God's word is actually trying to teach us how to become free, truly free, because we can't just do it. The day after I became a Christian, when I was 15 years of age, whatever, I suddenly wasn't this kind of, and I wanted to be. I naively wanted to wake up and think, you know, <laughs> you know, wow, I'm a different person, you know, um, whatever it might have been, a completely different accent or something, I don't know. But you know what I mean? Like I wasn't wearing glasses. Right. As, yeah, I wanted yeah. something dramatic. One leg was shorter. Well, I, yeah. You know, and, and, I, and, I, and I think, I think if we can continue to teach people that this, loving God wants us to be full of his life and he doesn't want us to perfect it he just wants us to kind of keep dipping our toe in and um, you know every Sunday fly out of the cage and we're going to make mistakes but then come back you know and be taught a little bit more Um, I think as we become more like him we will see more of him obviously that has to happen those those things come in tandem so um, can we learn to deny ourselves turn away from ourselves and become more like Christ of loving God loving our neighbors is, is kind of my sense so the one accent that I've heard from you is the church is the church has been very limited in both teaching about herself and teaching about her shepherd. 
Amen. Yeah, because we've spent so much of our time teaching about ourselves. Yeah. Right? This yeah. is this is a way for you to get yeah. this thing we call yeah. eternal life. Yeah. Ra- rather than the other exactly. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. a commercial. Yeah. It's a commercial transaction. It's not the cultivation for communion. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you both so much. And Martin, and you know this from just friendship and I'm really glad, we're really glad you're doing what you're doing. We, we are also knowledgeable of some of the challenges, and we do feel particularly some of the challenges you're facing right now, one of those being what David referred to. And so uh, blessings in your work, and thanks for taking the time to have this conversation with us. We're going to have a conversation with a number of other people, and, and we'll uh, keep you posted on how it all comes together. And, and so thanks Stimulating for Stimulating conversations. Yeah, God bless yeah. the three of you as yeah. um, you continue to do this. You're the first person, too. You're so brave. Thanks, Martin. Yeah. And, um, and do, uh, this, will this podcast come with subtitles? Uh, yeah, given my crazy accent, like a whole legend. You're not that div- You're not hard to understand. Oh, oh thank you, Alice. Like at just the Lord of the Rings <laughs> beginning of the different <laughs> lands that David refers to. Actually, we're gonna plains. we're gonna layer in a little Irish harp. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks so much. God bless. Rector's Cupboard releases a new episode every other Friday. The podcast is a production of Reflector Project. Hosts are Todd Weeb and Allison Williams. Cupboard master for tastings and locations is Ken Bell. Production and social media by Amanda Mina. For past episodes and other content, visit rectorscupboard.ca. Thanks for listening.